Welcome to the Learning Hook Podcast. Join our team as they explore topics across learning and development, e-learning, media production, and all those creative learning spaces in between. For us, it's the just in time, just enough, and just for you. So let's learn, connect, perform, and do something great. Welcome to the Learning Hook Podcast. This is your host, Brendan Carter, Creative Director and Founder of The Learning Hook. Thanks for joining us for our 10th episode. In this podcast, I'm joined by Damala Scales-Gosh, our lead learning designer at The Learning Hook, and Kathy Moore, internationally recognised thought leader on learning design, and who has a particular passion for saving the world from boring training. Now, this is certainly a mission which we've joined Kathy on, and I'm sure many of you have too. Kathy's specific focus in learning design has been her work on action mapping, which has evolved over the last 10 years, and I think as a framework has supported many other learning designers on their own mission to move from e-boring to e-learning, turning knowledge into action along the way, of course. So if you don't know the action mapping framework, you really are in for a treat. While I'd highly recommend you look Kathy up too, the action mapping framework is one of those learning design tools that once you learn it and use it, you'd kick yourself for not learning it sooner. Damala and I got a chance to interview Kathy and explore her work on action mapping, talking through how it's evolved over the last 10 years, how to get the most out of the framework, and certainly lots of tidbits on scenario design for both mini scenarios, which don't have to be simple, and more fully plotted out branching scenarios. Kathy mentions plenty of resources in the chat too, which we've provided as links on the Learning Hook blog and podcast site. So just go to learninghook.com.au and you'll find all these. Look in the blog posts. Well, if you'd like to meet Cathy in person, she's going to be in New Zealand between the 16th to 18th of May running a series of workshops with more trips planned for Australia in the near future. I do hope you enjoy this podcast as much as Damala and I enjoyed chatting with Cathy. If you do have any questions, queries or comments, please leave them on our blog or get in contact through our website. Enjoy the show. Thanks for joining us today, Kathy. It's, it's such a pleasure to get you on our podcast. Well, thanks for having me. We were really excited and um, I guess have been fans from afar and I, I think I, I wrote that to you. So um, it, it is great to meet. And, and one thing I'm really always interested in is, is a bit of a, just a short background, if you can share with us sort of, you know, I'm really interested in what led you to where you are now. I don't know how easy it is to sum that up, but uh, we'd love to hear a bit more of a background. I started out as a technical trainer for librarians who were learning how to use the newfangled IBM PC in the 80s, became a technical writer, worked in what they called correspondence study at the University of Wisconsin, which sort of morphed into e-learning, and then I abandoned academia. It was not a good fit for me, (laughs) and I went into K-12 e-learning. So working with elementary school online courses, and then I quit that and went into the corporate side in about 2002, I think it was, and I've been there ever since. And that's when the mission started to save the world from boring training. (laughs) Yeah, and I think the work that I did in academia and elementary school education, and then in the corporate world, I got this big perspective of how are we viewing education, training, and how they're, they're seen as the same thing when they definitely should not be. And so once I got to the corporate world, I wanted to change. I saw the problems brought in by this education perspective, and I wanted to change that. And I guess that in a way that led to action mapping, which I, I think in, it would be fair to say you're pretty famous for that, Kathy. Um, <laughs> 
it's an amazing process which so many learning designers follow, but it's also still new for people that are new to this industry. And is it easy for you to perhaps just summarise for us the sort of key elements of your action mapping process? Well, the process was born originally as a way to try to keep subject matter experts from cramming all sorts of unnecessary information into the material but it has since morphed a little bit. And the main point is to get everyone involved in the project to focus on how this project will actually improve the performance of the organization. We're trying to justify the existence of this project by showing what it will achieve. And so we start by identifying a business goal, something that we currently measure that will improve as a result of our project. We list what people need to do on the job to achieve that improvement, not what they need to know. We go through this cool flow chart that helps us analyze why people are not doing this and will training actually help or will there be other solutions instead or in addition to training? And if training will actually help, we brainstorm not the information they need to know, but the things that they need to practice, the decisions they need to practice. And only then do we identify what they need to know. What do they need to know to make these decisions on the job? So that's it in a nutshell. It's basically turning it inside out. When I was taught instructional design, I was told to start with learning objectives, which were all based on knowledge. Maybe I was taught wrong, but (laughs) that's how I was taught. And so we're sort of turning it inside out and starting with what would have been performance objectives. But even before the performance objective, we are trying to connect the project to the goals of the organization a lot more directly. It's such a brilliant tool, Kathy. I have to say, really love it. And I think those first two questions are really the two really big questions, really, aren't they? You know, what's the goal and what do people need to do? And just focusing in on that makes a huge difference to the design process. And it's not an original idea. A lot of people have been saying this for a long, long time. I think that one reason that action mapping is easier for some people to swallow is because it's sort of visual. It's got a sort of mind mapping aspect to it. So you can sort of see what you're doing. It's a little less abstract than other models that I was taught. It's so familiar to me as well, because I have a background in vocational education. And that's all about focusing on observable skills. Exactly. It's all about what can somebody demonstrate to prove competency. So everything we did in that was all about, you know, what do people need to do and then how do we try um, design the assessments and then after the assessments usually come the actual course materials. So it really makes a lot of sense to me as well from that perspective. Kathy, has, I know this is now almost 10 years old since your very first post about action mapping, I believe. It was in May mm-hmm. 2008. Oh, yeah, I think it's going to have its 10th birthday soon. Oh. So this is a little pre-birthday celebration. <laughs> Interesting to know, has it changed or evolved over the last 10 years? Yes, definitely. Because when I first thought of it, I was working for an e-learning developer. And so I was in a position that a lot of people are in, which is when people come to us saying, I need a course, they really do expect you to limit your job to producing a course because that is how you have sold yourself. I was working for a course producer, and so, of course, my my role was limited to producing courses. And so action mapping originally started as a way to at least make those courses a little more aligned with the business and more focused on behaviors than information. When I stopped working for e-learning developers, I got the opportunity more to 
start asking real questions like, is training even the answer to this problem? And so I can't remember in what year, but a few years later, I added the, is training even an answer to this question? I added, I think it was to step two, which is list what people need to do. And then I added, and ask, why aren't they doing it? And I added the flowchart that people can go through with their client and subject matter expert to ask is there a problem with the environment? Are, do they have the right tools? Is there a cultural situation in the organization that's encouraging them to do this thing the way you don't want them to do it? We ask a lot of questions, and it helps identify quick and more effective changes, such as creating job aids or improving tools or improving the process, in addition to or instead of training. Often it saves a lot of time and a lot of money. It makes so much sense. There's been quite a move lately, people talking a lot about moving to more towards performance support and creating really useful job aids. Of course, training is always going to be needed as well. And I've noticed we've just actually got your downloadable PDF on this, Will Training Help, right in front of us. So right. it's great. It's so important to ask all those questions. Why aren't people doing this one thing? And um, it really makes a difference in terms of the solution that, that we land on. Kathy, I'd really love to know, do you have a favorite action mapping story you'd like to share? My favorite one is actually just when an instructional designer came up to me and said, I've been using action mapping and now people really like what I produce. I used to hate my job and now I love it. <laughs> that was the biggest one for me. <laughs> it's a very small one, one individual saying I used to hate my job and now I love it. The action mapping, like you, I guess what you put together, Kathy, from my point of view, is, a, is an amazing framework. Like you said, it's sort of, in a way, it's nothing new, but it is a unique framework that you've put together that works for people. It's very to the point and it makes learning designers, it just gives business relevance to the decisions and choices that they're making, which is, gives them street cred within their business. So it's solving a number of problems for learning and development. It gives credibility, real business aims and outcomes and performance sort of support. And it also helps cut through all that additional content that is often the big challenge for a learning designer to, you know, it gives them the process to work with the subject matter expert to actually get to the heart of the problem. That's my hope, at least. Yeah. And that's probably a really great link to the other thing we'd love to talk about, and this is of particular interest to me, is um, your scenario design. Um, and, you know, your learning design is, is always focused on creating opportunities for authentic practice talking about what do you need to know but what do you need to do and, and how do you practice doing that. And so in doing that, you're also allowing people to discover what they need to learn rather than to be told. It's a powerful model to work with. Of course, it's always more challenging when we're delivering it online. It's a bit easier face-to-face to do those that kind of practice and get immediate feedback. Um, but you've come up with, I think, a really great approach um, and two of the activity types you write about are both mini scenarios and branching scenarios. So could you explain the difference between the two and why you might use each of those? My definition of a mini scenario is kind of specific. I've seen people using the term differently. In my little world, a mini scenario is a decision-making scenario, a situation, a realistic situation in which you make one decision and you see the consequence of that decision in the story, and that is it. So it's mini only in the sense that it's just one decision and you see the consequence. That mm. consequence could occur far in the future. You could see the long-term result of your decision, or it could be something that happens immediately. 
But it's basically the structure is one decision, one consequence, the end. That doesn't mean it's simplistic at all. So a lot of people say, oh, a mini scenario is an easy scenario, or a mini scenario is one that just happens like in a short time frame. I'm not sure where they get that, but it's, for me, it's a structural thing. And if you think in terms of tools, a mini scenario is a scenario you could create with a multiple choice question tool that lets you provide specific feedback for each option. So that's it. It doesn't require special tools, which branching scenarios require. They can be used for for powerful things. I have a blog post recently about how you could actually use a mini scenario to have them practice some pretty difficult decisions with nasty consequences in the future. They're not weak. It's just one question. And they're good, for example, if you want to help people practice one step of a procedure in lots of different situations, such as overcoming objections when you're teaching sales. Um, So you would have lots of mini scenarios with lots of different purchasers expressing different objections and you get to decide how to respond to it, that sort of thing. Fantastic. It's really in the writing and the design where it becomes powerful, isn't it? And that, that takes time, subject matter experts, and it takes writing and design time as well because we can all bang out a multiple choice question quite quickly but it doesn't do the same job as a really well-crafted, good scenario that's very authentic and realistic and provides the right amount of challenge and addresses the right performance issue that that people are practicing, I guess. It's a very difficult skill to develop because you're also having to change from what do they need to know to what do they need to do. And as you've said, you have to get all sorts of information from the subject matter expert Previously, for example, when I would interview a SME, I would say, what is the right way to do it? Okay, then I'll make them do it the right way. And now if you're writing a scenario question, even just one little mini scenario question, you have to get out of the subject matter expert's head, not only the right way to do it, but you also need to find out what is the consequence of the right way to do it? What makes the right way to do it so hard? What is tempting people to do it the wrong way? And actually, what are the other ways people could do this? What are all the many wrong ways (laughs) that people could do this? Why do they do it? You really need to understand why they might do it in a suboptimal way so you can include that temptation in your question to sort of tempt people to make the common mistake that they're often making in the world. And so you're getting a lot more from your SME. You're getting not only the right way, but also the many wrong ways. And for each one of those, why is it a tempting thing or why is it hard to do? And what would be the consequence of each of these things? So it's a lot more from the SME and it's a different relationship with the SME. Whereas before the subject matter expert might just give us a PowerPoint presentation with all the information. Now we are sort of interviewing them. We're doing a sort of a brain dump from them. And we're asking them questions like, tell me a story about a time when whatever happened. We're getting all of this contextual information that they may not even be aware that they have. That really makes me think of um, the contextual inquiry practice in um, user experience design which, you know, is almost the same thing. You're going in there, you're talking about what's happening on the job, what are people doing, how they're doing it, what's the context, um, and what are the decisions being made? And, yeah, exactly what are the common wrong decision points? So things that people commonly might think is the right decision but is actually not right. And they're really important to include because they're the ones that can really get people off track. 
Yes. We have a lot to learn from user experience design. I think we also have a lot to learn from marketing because marketers are very focused on changing what people do <laughs> and affecting their decisions. Yeah, yeah. We can just use those marketing for good rather than evil. <laughs> Not that marketing is evil. <laughs> Not all the time anyway. Um, I had an idea then, mm. and I don't know whether it's a good one or a bad one, but I, I love the idea. I think it's actually a real challenge to get a complex, to get together a, a complex mini scenario. It, mm. it's, mm. it's, 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 it can be so powerful mm. too. An idea was just that you could also use it where you don't give that sort of rich feedback until later. So you start with a, a, a greater mind-bending mini scenario where the complexity is in the decision-making and there's a level of sophistication in the problem and some red herrings, et cetera. And then you do some training. And as you're moving through the training, we keep reflecting back on what you think that feedback will be. Mm. So as you learn along the way, right, yeah. it's going. So remember that decision you made at the start? Yeah. yeah. Do you have any other thoughts on how you could, <laughs> how you might have thought about it, this and et cetera? You can sort of see where I'm leading with that. Yeah. So it's kind of, you could give some great feedback along the way where you're getting someone to really think about what they're learning and how that relates to that kind of complex mm. question they got up front. Yeah. And yeah. then at the end, we give them the feedback. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe we ask the same question again. Yeah, are you going to change your answer now? <laughs> yeah. I like it. It's, not, it, yeah. it's sort of intriguing. It kind of keeps that sort of thing of, oh, yeah. Yeah, right. well, it's peeling back the onion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it. And so, Kathy, this might be sort of an obvious question, but mini scenarios versus branching scenarios, do you, when would you use each or does it just depend on scope and budget and or does it really, do you think it really depends on, you know, the goal of the training, I guess? In an ideal world, the nature of the decision would determine what type of scenario or the nature of the task that you want them to practice would determine the scenario type. So, for example, if, as I mentioned before, a mini scenario is great if you want them to practice a particular skill in lots of different situations, even if that's one step of a longer complex process. And often people with a long process think, oh, we need a branching scenario because it's like the six-step process. But when they look more closely at it, people are fine with, for example, steps one and two. Step three is the tricky one where they screw up. So Maybe we don't need to walk them through the entire process. Maybe we just need to have them do step three in a lot of different situations, in which case a mini scenario could be helpful. For branching scenarios, their big strength is helping people practice a complex situation in which early decisions affect what they have to work with later in the story. This would be the classic example is a complex discussion, like a negotiation. You make a bad step early on, and then your person isn't quite as open to things later on in the discussion, and you need to practice recognizing when that has happened and practice recovering from it. Because in the real world, we can't click the back arrow to go back and make a better decision. So branching scenarios are great to help people practice recognizing and recovering from mistakes. They're also good at, you know, any of those long, murky things, difficult discussions, negotiation, talking with an employee about performance problems, complex sales, that sort of thing. That's great. It makes so much sense. And also as soft skills being one of those areas where we're just seeing more and more um, as time goes on, this seems like a really powerful tool to practice them. Mm -hmm. 
It's, they're also tricky to write. They're extremely satisfying to write and also tricky <laughs> to write because the most common mistake that I see people making is, well, there's all sorts of mistakes, but a, a very common one is to write a plot that is too simplistic because it's a lot of work to write them. We're writing them and we think, wow, this is hard. This is challenging. This will trick them. And then we show it to some sample learners and they say, well, that's way too obvious or that would never happen. Or they just breeze through it immediately and we realize that we made it too simple. So that's one of the, the common challenges is to make it too easy because from our perspective, it's hard to write. We're so deep into it. So one, one thing I really recommend everybody do is to write the plot first, not the story, just a high level plot mm. using notes, using a flow chart and walk some sample learners through that plot and see how challenging it is. You'll have to tell them the story because you're just showing them sort of a flow chart with notes and get their feedback and their feedback will, you know, just prepare yourself. The feedback will probably be, this is way too easy. Or you'll see that they're making decisions too easily, or they'll say this is too fake if they're honest. So prepare yeah. yourself for that. <laughs> Write the plot first. <laughs> that makes so much sense. It's getting the structure right first before kind of putting in the, the finer details. I remember yeah. this process in your podcast with Connie Malamud actually about prototyping your, the branching scenarios and how it's important to start with low fidelity designs. And, um, yeah, I was really interested in the tools and processes you use. So you've just started explaining the process a little bit. I think that's so critical. And getting access to your audience is going to be key there too in the success of this. Because when a, when a scenario um, is a dud, it's really painful to experience. Yes, it really is. You feel embarrassed for the person who wrote it. And yeah. <laughs> Well, and quality assurance is a pain too, right? <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. That's, that's why we need, um, I see people trying to write scenarios in Word and that makes the quality assurance part is, is horrific if it's in Word. It's much easier, again, we're talking branching scenarios. It's much easier to write the plot first in either a flowcharting tool like Lucid Chart or any flowcharting tool you already have, or preferably, my preference is to use Twine. Mm. which is a, an interactive fiction tool that is available free from twinery.org. And I like it because I can do everything in that tool. I can write the high-level plot, and it creates a sort of visual flowchart of all these little index cards, each index card representing a scene, and you can see how they're all related. So when you write your high-level plot, you can use that twine flowchart view to say, okay, so they make this decision, and then they go down here, and then this happens. What do you think about that? You can talk it through in a visual way. And mm-hmm. then once you've got the plot firmed up, undoubtedly once you run the plot by some people, you're going to want to make it more complex. So you add some more plot twists and everything. Once the plot is ready to go, only then do you actually flesh it out as a story, add the dialogue, all the details. And you can also do that in Twine. And in Twine, you can even produce the final scenario, depending on how slickly you need it to be produced. You can produce an HTML clickable interaction. And the ones on your website, are they produced in Twine? So I've checked out those. Most of them are. If they are, I usually I say it. I think there's a tab on my website called uh, Scenarios, I believe, <laughs> or Scenario Design. And there's a, one of the options there is uh, Sample Scenarios. And so I've sort of accumulated a lot on that page and I say whether they were developed in Twine or not. I am a very low-level user of Twine. Basically, I limit myself to putting a static photo as sort of a background to the story. 
but people with more nerdy skills than mine can add video. You can add photos that change in every scene. But there are also tools aimed at the e-learning industry that are, are more slick, like Branch Track is one of those. It's, it has a Twine-like interface for writing the story, but then it adds a lot of the bells and whistles that a lot of e-learning people like, but that one's not free. I think what we're saying is we have to use Twine from now on. <laughs> I'm saying you could actually, you could use Post-it notes on the wall, really. There's, there's no need to use specific tools. The main idea is, is really design a high-level plot first. And I teach a scenario design course, and people send me their, their ideas and their plots and their homework. And the most common mistake I see is people start to write the story before they've written the plot. They write themselves into like a dead-end alley, and they can't get out again. Or they get lost because they're trying to write a branching story in Word. So really, yeah. a flowchart yeah. or post-it notes, draw it. If you have a tablet, just sketch it out there. <laughs> Do it that way. Oh, no, absolutely, Kathy. And I, I guess I am taking away to just sort of, I guess, jokingly saying just use twine. But what we are saying <laughs> is that for branching scenarios, there's so much benefit in showing it actually from a, a visual point of view. Uh, exactly. Those key concepts because multimedia developers probably don't listen to this podcast, Kathy. But what we're saying would actually benefit them so much too from a production point of view because often they do read storyboards in Word and branching scenarios do their heading, right? <laughs> You're the guys and girls that are building this thing, you know, and so for them to build it so it makes so much sense to visually show it. A piece of work we were working on recently around occupational violence and we did some branching scenarios um, the developer, you know, built it in, it was just using Articulate or something, I think, but the view from Articulate was awesome mm. because when you zoom out, you can see he could just show us visually and exactly how it works because it just, it looks like little cards, you know, which yes. is sitting in that right branch. And that's actually how we should have presented him yes. with the storyboard mm. and our client, in fact, too, mm. rather than... Yeah you know, refer to one point, go back to one slide 1.1 1. 1 or, or whatever, you know, in a Word doc. It's such a simple thing, but what a great, great tip, I think. And even when I, when I first started out, before I knew about Twine, I was doing it in a flowcharty way. And so I would write a flowchart version of the plot. And then once that was all approved, I would number every item in the flowchart and that would end up being a slide in the final tool because they were using a slide-based tool. And that was really helpful because everybody knew which slide was which. If something needed to be tweaked, they would look at the flowchart and see that that was slide 27. <laughs> they would go to slide 27 and do the tweaking. Yeah, perfect. And this kind of high-level design is good learning design practice as well, in my opinion. Um, I really think it's great right. to start with that very high-level structure. So you can see mm. what we talk about cadence in the office here, you know, how things are flowing, how they're connecting points of intensity in the design, so where things get a little bit intense or challenging. Um, and it's so much easier to actually intentionally design those and to tweak them when you've just got it at a very high level rather than you've got all the detail you've got to deal with, all mm. the writing and the, and to get it right at that stage. So, yeah, mm. it makes so much sense. You're obviously, really doing a really well-researched, well-structured and very well-written scenario, which you need to be effective. There's a lot of time invested in that. And because the outcome of that is going to be a very powerful tool, but it doesn't look necessarily very big or whiz-bangy, 
I'm just wondering, do you have any success stories about clients that have shared that they've had a, a real success from using branching scenarios in a solution? Just to kind of help those people who might feel a little bit like, yeah, it's a great idea, but really, do we need, really need to invest that much? <laughs> as you know, there is not a lot of measurement in our world, not nearly as much as there should be. So I don't have clients that say, oh, you know, our sales increased X percent because we created this branching scenario, unfortunately. I do have a lot of anecdotal stories about, oh, they really liked the scenario and that made our training more appealing. It made our training more viral. One project that I was involved with, on my site, there is a branching scenario called Connect with Haji Kamal, which was developed in Flash. And it was part of a much larger project in which we created a lot of scenarios. And one of the scenarios that I created was actually delivered as a printout. This was one where I wrote it in flowcharty form and then created a Word document and printed it out as a choose-your-own-adventure packet. And it was used in small groups by cadets at West Point to prepare them for some tricky cross-cultural situations. And the instructors said that the students became so involved with discussing the scenario that when the bell rang to change classes, they didn't want to leave, which is pretty, <laughs> pretty strong recommendation. I don't know, you know how well it affected their performance in the field, but it did deeply involve them in discussing important, challenging situations that they were going to face. So in that respect, it was a success. Yeah, and true authentic practice. And this is, you know, these are as close as it gets other than oh. actually being in the situation is, you know, a tried and tested way of really cementing learning, really. So it makes so much sense. It's a shame that we don't often, you know, as learning designers oh. have access to how did that go? Any sort of measurable success? <laughs> Anything um, at all, please. <laughs> it's a <real> shame. <laughs> I think learner engagement is huge. I mean, that's a huge step to overcome to start with. If people are engaged and interested and talking about stuff, then, yeah. Well, it's the tension too. Yeah. For, I guess the tension in problem solving. If we spoon feed people, they learn the shape of the spoon. Mm. So, yes. you know, we've got to <laughs> get past that. And, that, and I know, yeah, for, for my mind, I, I know um, problem solving, it's when I resolve a problem that I, I remember, you know, I've learned something mm. through the process. Yeah, um, right. Even if I solved it poorly. Yes. In the real world. There is also research that supports the use of scenarios for developing decision-making skills. And I, I linked to some of that on my website. I think it's under the scenarios tab or scenario design tab. There is, a, I think, I linked to a page where I summarize a lot of the research. Mm -hmm. There's also, um, I would point people to Ruth Clark's book on scenario design. Mm -hmm. And the name escapes me because I have not finished my coffee but the author, <laughs> Ruth Colvin Clark, she has a book on designing scenarios. Yeah, scenario design. We'll put that on our podcast notes <laughs> and make sure that you, you get a copy for um, those listening. Kathy is in Spain. So. <laughs> I'm and, sure the coffee's really uh, good there too. <laughs> it is actually. Yeah, I'm a coffee uh, snob, but I found some good coffee. Well, you'll have to come. Well, you know, next time you're in Melbourne, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Kathy, <laughs> we're kind of renowned for uh, good coffee and food. And Kathy, are you coming to Sydney or Melbourne at all? This trip, unfortunately, will be focused on New Zealand, so I won't be going over to Australia. But I'm sure to be coming back at some point. 
Well, we'd love to see you here. Um, I did get very excited when I saw you were coming down under. Obviously not down under far enough. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I do go there regularly. I'm sure to go back soon. <laughs> Great. So we know you've got a huge wealth of resources on your website, which I've spent you know much time clicking through and printing things. Your job aids, worksheets for learning designers and blog posts and stuff like that. Where else can people learn more about action mapping and scenario design? Well, I did mention uh, Ruth Colvin Clark's book. That is a good place to learn about scenario design in, in general. And I also have a course on scenario design, which is an online course in which you actually apply what you're learning to a project from your job. So you come with a project from your job. We have live online sessions once a week for four weeks, and you have a ton of homework and online resources. And the next session of the course starts in June 2018. And there's a session specifically for people in Australia and New Zealand. It may not be like during your day, but at least it's while you're conscious. I've had people get up at four in the morning to, to attend the course. So you don't have to do that. <laughs> so we've got thanks to the magical alignment of various daylight savings times, we have a, a time in which we are both conscious. And so there's a course session for you guys. Also in New Zealand, in Auckland, I will be presenting and doing a short informal workshop on how to manage your clients and subject matter experts expectations. You know, they want you to just turn this information into a course. How do you talk to them to get them to move away from that mindset? Mm. What else? Oh, I have a book called Map It, the what is it called? Map It, the Strategic Guide to Training Design or something like that. That's available from Amazon and in Australia from the Book Depository. Yeah, I've just got it. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very in-depth look at action mapping, extremely nerdy, in-depth look. And what else? What else? There's um, a lot of people are talking about action mapping. You, you'll see it presented at conferences and everything. I, I would suggest that if you see people presenting it, to pay special attention to how they manage the step two of listing what people need to do on the job and asking why aren't they doing it. I've seen people skip that step, asking why aren't people doing this thing? And that's an extremely important step because, for example, if you're thinking scenarios might be part of the solution, you need to really understand why people are making bad decisions. So you need that analysis. And also, just because, just to be ethical training designers, we need to confirm that training is actually part of the solution. And that's what that step achieves. That can uncover that, absolutely. That's that sort of performance needs analysis. And we often sign in, find in training when we're running analysis up front, that's when you're identifying process problems mm. from a business operational point of view, which could be mm -hmm. or a job aid could be the solution. Exactly. I have heard from so many people where they thought that, you know, they were going to have to create a $30,000 course and it turned out they needed a job aid. Mm. Investment in analysing that, I imagine, too, because there's one thing for managers or, or subject matter experts to say, well, I think they're not doing it because, mm -hmm. but you know, then is that actually a sound um, bit of information? What are they basing that on? Have they observed that? Have they interviewed people? So, yeah, there's, I can imagine really getting a real answer to that question could actually take a little bit of time as well. Yeah, and that's something that, that is an issue for a lot of us. And in my book and in my materials, I usually suggest that we do, it can be done in as little as two hours if we have a good subject matter expert and an open-minded client, and ideally include some future learners or current workers 
the SME, your, ideally your subject matter expert, is going to be currently doing the job. Mm. So they should have that kind of knowledge themselves. They might be like a star performer or something, but they are not somebody removed from the job. But ideally, a better, you know, more in-depth analysis could take forever. I mean, you could get really into it. So I'm just, um, I would caution people to not get so deep into it that the project gets mired down. But do what you can in the amount of time and budget that you have. And it's at least more than many of us have been doing. A lot of the time, at least when I was working in e-learning land, we never asked, is training actually part of the solution? We just assumed. Yeah, that step also reminds me about um, creating personas um, in your user experience design. And to do those properly, you need to do a whole lot of research. But then, you know, if you don't have time for that, you need to keep moving, you can do the proto-personas. So you, you do a kind of like, this is our best understanding of this. And it's still better than nothing at all. Exactly. It does make a lot of sense. I think we're coming to the end of our podcast. Um, I, I wanted to say thanks so much for taking the time out and having a chat and, and sharing this advice. I, I've picked up quite a few tips from, from this chat. One of them was don't ever, never skip step two in action mapping. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> if you skip step two, don't call it action mapping then. Just, you know, don't associate it with me. <laughs> and one of the great powers you know of action mapping is actually in the visual mapping exercise itself i think as well as uh write the plot first for branching scenarios and test that with the audience it's almost doing a film treatment before you write the script uh, i love it yeah, yeah and both of them both the action mapping visual map approach and also the mapping of the branching scenario it's like the, the lesson is the same start at a high mm. level know where you're going before you go there and make sure you know why you're going there. Yeah, and really test that out. No, I love it. And the, and the mini scenarios, they don't have to be simple. Perhaps they shouldn't be. There is a level, I think, that we of complexity I like to bring to, to problem solving. Mm. And scenarios are about problem solving often. Mm. Decision making. That was um, an interesting point that you made in the branching scenarios is about the decisions that you make early on. Um, and that was that was really interesting. That was a key takeaway nice. for me from that. So if you've made the wrong decision early on, um, so building that into your design, and then how do you kind of manage that throughout the scenario? And also, yeah. I love the um, the idea that you can use the mini scenarios for just one step in a process, and just yeah, get to practice it in different environments with different clients or different situations. Um, that mm. makes so much sense. A key ingredient to using the branching scenario to help people recognize and recover from past mistakes, we have to make sure we give them what people in my scenario design course call redemption paths, which means if they are going down a not great path toward a not good ending, we need to give them some options that let them make a decision that recovers and gets them onto a better path. They should not be doomed from the beginning to go end up at a bad path. If they make a bad decision, that should not doom them for eternity unless that really happens in the real world. Yeah. We should give them options that let them recognize, ooh, I think I yeah. haven't uh, said this quite right. I need to say something to sort of smooth that over and get onto a better path. So these are paths that sort of go horizontally among the branches of the scenario. Yeah, just replicating the real world, isn't it? Really creating authentic uh, learning experiences. Right. That's the idea. It's, it's a challenge to do. Right. Let's get to it then. <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to head off and uh, download Twine, twinery.org. Um, exactly. Yeah. 
Uh, it's fantastic catching up, Cathy, and thanks again for taking the time. I hope the trip to New Zealand's a, a really good one, and we really look forward to meeting in person too. Well, thanks for having me. It's been great talking with you, and I, I hope to meet you soon. Thanks, fantastic. Cathy. Thanks, Cathy. Thank you.